What does it mean to be a hero? What does it mean to change the world? I am Carlos Botero. And I'm Sinjin Flynn. Discover how Beethoven changed music forever with his heroic Symphony No. 3 in this episode of the Houston Symphonies on the Music. Beethoven lived in an age that needed a hero. Freedom itself was struggling for survival. For centuries, Europe had been ruled by often brutally oppressive monarchies. Basic rights we take for granted today, like freedom of speech and religion, were rare if encountered at all. These ideas only gradually emerged as philosophers began to dream of a better world. When the French Revolution erupted in 1789, toppling the centuries-old Bourbon dynasty, hopes ran high that the era of despotic kings and emperors was coming to an end. The bloody reign of terror and ensuing wars that followed, however, soon cast these hopes into grave doubt. The idealism that began the revolution seemed to be under attack from both inside and out, and if the coalition of monarchies fighting France succeeded, they would surely restore the old Bourbon dynasty to power. The revolution needed a hero, someone who could unite France and defend the revolution from invasion. In 1803, when Beethoven wrote his third symphony, that hero seemed to have appeared. His name was Napoleon Bonaparte. Of comparatively humble origins, his father was a lawyer, Napoleon had risen through the ranks of the French military, winning battle after battle. Through an admittedly Machiavellian coup, he became first consul of France, adopting a title based on the consuls of the ancient Roman Republic. All Europe was fascinated by him. Never before in recorded history had someone who started so low risen so high. Furthermore, many hoped that he would at last fulfill the initial promise of the revolution, bringing freedom and reform to France and possibly beyond. Beethoven was a child of the German Enlightenment, or Aufklärung. As a teenager, his music teacher, Christian Gottlob Niefer, had introduced him to the Lesegesellschaft, or Reading Club of Bonn, Beethoven's hometown in the German Rhineland. At the time, Bonn was a part of the Holy Roman Empire, which was ruled by the Austrian Emperor Joseph II. Compared to other monarchs of the time, Joseph II was fairly progressive. He abolished serfdom, increased religious freedom, promoted education, and pursued many other modernizing reforms. During this time, the young Beethoven was exposed to many of the ideas and values of the Enlightenment through the Reading Club. He attended lectures at the newly established University in Bonn. He was introduced to the basic precepts of Kantian philosophy. He read classical Greek and Roman literature in German translation. He learned the poems of Goethe and Schiller, and he may even have been exposed to the teachings of banned secret societies like the Freemasons and Illuminati. Politically, Beethoven came to see the value of freedom and republican forms of government. He also came to appreciate the difference an enlightened ruler like Emperor Joseph II could make on society. When Joseph II died in 1790, he was succeeded by his brother, Leopold II. Joseph's reform had not been popular with everyone. Powerful entrenched interests soon set about trying to undo his reforms, and after Leopold II's death in 1792, the reaction intensified. 
Austria effectively became a police state as the new government cracked down on freedom of thought and expression. Beethoven was keenly aware of this political repression. Throughout his life, several of his acquaintances would run into trouble with the secret police. Beethoven was often openly critical of the regime's regressive policies. Fortunately for him, his connections to wealthy aristocratic patrons and his reputation as an eccentric musical genius shielded him from too much scrutiny. Beethoven's political frustrations were accompanied by personal crisis. For the past several years, Beethoven had begun to experience a slow, agonizing hearing loss that would eventually render him completely deaf. The year before he began to compose his third symphony, Beethoven had wrestled with this terrifying fate. Fighting thoughts of suicide, Beethoven resolved to continue on for the sake of his art. He resolved to take a new path in his music that would be totally different from anything he or anyone else had done before. But in what direction will this new path lead him? One source of inspiration that likely influenced and stoked Beethoven's ambitions was Sulzer's general theory of the fine arts. In it, Sulzer argued that German culture was ripe to enter a golden age and might produce a second Homer, who could compose epics to rival the Iliad and the Odyssey. Throughout his life, Beethoven often referred to himself as a tone dichter or tone poet. Given the character of the music that he wrote for his third symphony, there can be no question that Beethoven aspired to create the musical equivalent of a Homeric epic. Sulzer's one reservation regarding a new Homer was that in the modern age, a theme will be lacking that would allow so many famous heroes and leaders to appear upon the scene. For Beethoven, it was clear that this theme had to be Napoleon. In Napoleon, Beethoven saw someone who, like himself, rose from humble origins to great success through hard work and an innate genius. Furthermore, Beethoven hoped that Napoleon would be an enlightened ruler like Joseph II had been. His status as first consul of a revolutionary new republic, combined with his seeming invincibility on the battlefield and personal charisma, fascinated Beethoven. If any contemporary figure could be the hero of a new epic, surely it was Napoleon. Despite the fact that Napoleon had recently defeated Austria and annexed some of its territories, Austria and France were at peace in 1803 and enjoyed fairly good relations. Austria was anxious to avoid further military conflicts and believed that peace or even an alliance with France would be the best way to avoid more defeats. Taking advantage of this truce, Beethoven planned to compose a great symphony inspired by Napoleon, a symphony in an unprecedented style that would be his greatest work yet. He would then take his symphony to France, hoping to gain new patrons in a more favorable political climate. Over time, symphonies evolved so that their movements often unfolded like a story. They began with an exposition that introduces the main musical ideas, followed by a development full of conflict in which the ideas are fragmented and transformed. They then end with a recapitulation in which the ideas return and the conflicts are resolved. In this symphony, Beethoven wanted to find a musical analogue for narratives of ancient gods and heroes. The proportions of the symphony reflect Beethoven's ambitions. The first movement alone is as long as some of Haydn's shortest symphonies, and as a whole, this was the longest symphony ever written. Its duration, however, 
was not its most revolutionary characteristic. Many of the stranger elements of his musical style that critics had noticed in his earlier works here find their full expression. This music is raw, wild, and full of jarring dissonances and rhythms. Beethoven needed an unprecedented musical language that could express the violence of epic struggle. The symphony opens with two explosive E-flat major chords. The attack of the full orchestral sound is shocking, like an opening volley of cannon fire or lightning bolts hurled from Mount Olympus. It is as if the symphony has begun like one of Homer's epics in the midst of a struggle already underway. After this call to arms, the music becomes quiet as the cellos intone the main idea of the movement. This simple idea also outlines one of the basic building blocks of music, the triad. It is as if Beethoven is taking the notes that we heard all at once in the opening chords and is now presenting them to us one by one. This opening idea has an irresistible forward momentum. It accelerates and expands outward as it progresses. The music tells us that this note, E-flat, is home, a point of rest, the stable centre of gravity that anchors the piece. It is the source from which the symphony comes and the home to which it must return. The range of this opening idea also corresponds to the range of a man's singing voice, and the cello's deep, rich sound gives the opening idea a masculine character. Perhaps this is the hero. This idea is immediately cut short by a dissonant C-sharp that casts a shadow over the music. This unexpected note, which is foreign to the home key of E-flat, creates tension and stops the hero in his tracks. Nearly all of the melodic ideas in these movements are fragmentary, creating a sense of ongoing turmoil. As the violins enter with breathless, offbeat syncopations, the C-sharp is also up a step to a D sending the music back to the home key of E-flat main. No sooner does the theme return than it begins to fragment again, rising through different instruments. The ascent is soon frustrated by a rhythmically disjointed passage that creates a palpable sense of struggle. So far, the music has been in 3-4. You can count 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3 as it unfolds. Now it goes into 2-4, grouping by 2. One, two, one, two, one, two. First the music was disrupted by a dissonant note, now it is disrupted by strange accents and rhythm. The heroic idea breaks through in a triumphant passage for full orchestra. But victory is fleeting as the music continues its headlong rush. A series of more lyrical, fragmentary ideas vies with crashing passages for full orchestra. As the music changes key, leaving behind the stability of E-flat and rising to B-flat, after a furious passage dominated by the 
unmistakable rhythm of horses' hooves. The music arrives in a new key of B-flat. A gentle yearning idea in the woodwinds provides momentary respite, but it too is a fragment, more a series of pulsing harmonies than a true melody. The music fades away, leading to an electric crescendo. Beethoven throws us off balance by stressing the normally weak beats of the 1-2-3 pattern. 1-2-3-1-2-3. This leads to a completely disorienting series of violin chords in the full orchestra. A softer passage allows us to catch our breath before a final series of chords ends the exposition. Fragments of the heroic idea lead us back to the opening cello statement. And we experience the tumult of the exposition again. Observing this traditional repeat allows us to process the complex music we have just heard and prepares us for the development to come. The development begins with the lyrical, falling fragment that follow the heroic idea, creating an air of an easy calm before a battle. Soon the heroic idea reappears in the distant and threatening key of E minor amid the thunder of horse hooves. A desperate figure in the strings intervenes before the melee resumes. To a fugette that combines the falling figure with the horse hoof rhythm. The music breaks down, leading to a crisis. Jarring rhythms and harmonies are combined as the full orchestra lunges from one dissonance to another, climaxing with the most harrowing cry in all music. ghostly new theme appears in the oboes, the first complete melody to appear in the movement. The heroic idea reasserts itself, but ultimately leads to collapse.
just as the music dies away to almost nothing, a lone horn calls out with the heroic idea. The recapitulation begins. This time, the C-sharp dissonance resolves down to C. The horn takes up the theme in F major, leading to one of Beethoven's most exquisite orchestral effects, as the sound of the horn melts into that of a flute. This serene music replaces the disjointed rhythms of the exposition, leading to a truly triumphant proclamation of the heroic idea. The other ideas of the exposition return as the recapitulation unfolds, similarly resolved in the home key of E-flat. After the last of them has appeared, we reach the coda. A series of raw and polished harmonies stands like a gate before it, E-flat major. D-flat major, C major, This strange progression reinforces the resolution of the C-sharp down to C-natural when the heroic idea first returned in the recapitulation. This becomes this. There's one theme left to resolve, the mysterious theme from the development. After appearing in F minor, it resolves into E flat minor. It may not be E flat major, but it is as resolved as this haunting theme can be. Gradually, music returns to major, growing in strength. As the horns intone the heroic idea, the music seems to float, to soar. At last, the triumphal procession appears as the heroic idea returns in its full glory.
The second movement is a funeral march in C minor. Modelled on funeral marches written in revolutionary France, it begins with a hushed, restrained melody in the strings alone. The double basses imitate the sound of the drums that would have accompanied a French revolutionary funeral procession. A solo oboe takes up the theme, leading to a new phrase. For a moment, the drum roll accompaniment stops as the music turns inward. The melody is full of pregnant pauses, as if the violins were choked with emotion. As the march proceeds, the music unexpectedly shifts to C major. The woodwinds play a hymn-like melody, leaning to a powerful statement for full orchestra, undoubtedly a salute to the fallen. Inexorably, the music soon returns to the C minor funeral march. A double fugue begins, becoming more intense and complex as emotion overwhelms the orchestra. movement ends with a fragmented, broken return of the funeral march.
In the third movement, the music comes back to life as whispering strings introduced a rustic melody played by a solo oboe. The whispered tune is passed from instrument to instrument like a joke until the full orchestra finally says it out loud. The contrasting middle section is traditionally called a trio, regardless of how many instruments play. This time, Beethoven takes the name literally, giving us an actual trio of hunting horns. Usually, after the trio, the first section is repeated. Beethoven, however, writes out the return in full throwing in a few surprises. Most noticeably, he changes from 3-4 to cut time. 1-2-3-1-2-3-1-2-3-1-2-3-2-1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2. For a few measures just to throw us off. The movement ends with one last slight chromatic line passed between the woodwinds followed by a joyful final chord. The finale begins with a grand flourish, a frantic fanfare leading to Well, that was anticlimactic. It's just a bass line with no melody. Is this a joke? I thought this symphony was supposed to be heroic. It is, Sinjan, but Beethoven has something interesting to say about heroism that you might not expect. The meaning of this movement is intimately linked to the source of the bass line you just heard. Beethoven drew this bass line, and the melody which it eventually accompanies, from a ballet he wrote in 1801 called The Creatures of Prometheus. You may be familiar with the ancient Greek myth about Prometheus, the titan who stole fire from the gods and gave it to humanity. As punishment, Zeus chained him to a rock and cursed him to have his liver eaten by an eagle every day. This, however, is not the version of the story told in the ballet by Beethoven. The ballet instead focuses on Prometheus as a bringer of civilization and enlightenment to humankind. In it, two statues, one of a man and the other of a woman, come to life, and Prometheus leads them to Mount Parnassus to learn from the muses. This melody fascinated Beethoven endlessly. Between composing the ballet and beginning work on this symphony, Beethoven used it as a basis for an entire set of piano variations. The artist Willy Brought Joseph Miller once witnessed Beethoven improvise on this melody for two hours. 
it is a contradance in the English style, known as an Englische in German. In the 18th century, contradances were one of the few occasions when social classes would mix as nobles would dance with commoners. This, combined with the story of the ballet, might suggest a meaning for the final movement. It may represent the hero's works of peace, bringing enlightenment and a more egalitarian social order to the world. Beethoven likely began composing the rest of the symphony with this finale in mind. Indeed, some scholars believe that all of the main musical ideas of the symphony can be derived from the English melody or its bass line. A musical joke that begins the movement may be a depiction of the act of composition itself, as Beethoven constructs first the bass line, then through the process of variation, discovers the melody. The rich inventiveness of Beethoven's imagination is on full display as he transforms the theme from variation to variation. It becomes a fugue, a march, a complex developmental passage, and finally a slow hymn. Beginning in the solo oval, more and more instruments take up the hymn until all play it together. We can't know for sure, but perhaps Beethoven is providing us with a vision of harmonious, creative society at peace. After this expansive variation, the music darkens, leading to G minor. The music fades away, leaving us wondering, questioning. But this is not the way to enter symphony. The opening flourish reappears, leading to the sort of happy ending the novelist Henry James will describe as a distribution at the last of prizes, pensions, husbands, wives, babies, millions, appended paragraphs, and cheerful remarks. Beethoven seems to reassure us. What other ending could there be?
When Beethoven laid down his pen, he knew he had composed his greatest masterpiece yet. As his student and secretary, Ferdinand Ries, wrote, In his own opinion, it is the greatest work that he has yet written. Beethoven played it for me recently, and I believe that heaven and earth will tremble when it is performed. By May of 1804, Beethoven was eager to begin his move to France. Now that the symphony was complete, he was ready. But there was one event that would upset his plans. Ries later related. At the very top of the title page stood the word Buonaparte. I was the first to tell him the news that Bonaparte had declared himself emperor, whereupon he flew into a rage and shouted, So he too is nothing more than an ordinary man. Now he will also trample all human rights underfoot and only pander to his own ambition. He will place himself above everyone else and become a tyrant. Beethoven went to the table, took hold of the title page at the top, ripped it all the way through and flung it to the floor. As so often happens with heroes, Napoleon failed to live up to Beethoven's expectations. The story, however, does not end there. The following August, Beethoven wrote to the publisher Breitkopf and Hertel that the title of the symphony is really Bonaparte. That same month, a surviving copy of the manuscript's title page has the words entitled Bonaparte scratched out and the words written on Bonaparte penciled in in Beethoven's handwriting added beneath. Clearly, Beethoven wavered on whether to keep the title of Bonaparte or not even if Bonaparte was no longer a hero, but nothing more than an ordinary man in Beethoven's eyes. Was he any worse than Austrian reactionaries Kaiser Franz? Should he cancel his plans to move to Paris? After all, the symphony was inspired by Bonaparte, or at least by Beethoven's memory of what he had seemed to be. Beethoven's indecision soon decided for him. Relations between Austria and France deteriorated, and by August 1805, they were at war again. Either a move to Paris or a symphony dedicated to Bonaparte was now politically impossible. When the symphony was published in 1806, the title page read Sinfonia Eroica per festigare il sovvenire di un gran uomo, or Heroic Symphony in Celebration of the Memory of a Great Man. And for the rest of Beethoven's life, that was the symphony's name. There will always be some mystery regarding the meaning of this symphony. Beyond the tantalizing titles of Bonaparte, Symphonia Eroica, and Marche Funebre, Beethoven left no direct clues as to what the movements are about. Centuries of speculation have produced numerous theories. Some believe the symphony depicts actual historical events, others that it depicts the story of the Iliad, others that the entire symphony is a retelling of the Prometheus myth. Many wonder whom the funeral march is meant to commemorate, considering that Napoleon was still alive when Beethoven wrote it. Indeed, perhaps the most pressing question is how much and in what way did Napoleon Bonaparte inspire this music? We can never know how exact a story Beethoven meant to tell in this symphony, or if he meant to tell an actual story at all. Most likely, Beethoven was more concerned with composing music that would express heroism than with scoring a particular narrative. If Beethoven ever did have a specific story in mind, 
we don't need to know what it was to appreciate and understand this music, because it is so powerful and suggestive by itself. If we ask ourselves where Beethoven's preoccupation with struggle, triumph, despair, joy and creation came from, why he felt compelled to address these subjects in music, the answer is likely not Napoleon, but Beethoven's own personal struggle and triumphs, especially his own struggles with his hearing loss. Though it was not Beethoven's intention, many believe Beethoven himself is the true hero of this heroic symphony. In 1804, the symphony received a private premiere at the Palace of Prince Lobkowitz, the patron who ultimately received the dedication of the symphony. Rehearsals were difficult because so much of the music was new and strange to the players. Even Rees thought the horn call before the recapitulation of the first movement was an error, a mistake that sent Beethoven into a rage. When the symphony was performed, however, the prince was entranced. He gave several private performances for friends and invited guests, including one at which a visitor requested to hear it three times on the same day. The public premiere was less successful. While Beethoven's champions embraced the work, critics and the general public were baffled by it. Some complain of its strange modulation and violent transitions, others its inordinate length and difficulty. Many wish Beethoven would go back to writing music the way he used to. Beethoven was disappointed by this reaction, but continued to pursue his new path regardless. Only a few years later, after becoming more familiar with this complex and sprawling work, critics and audiences changed their tune. The Allgemeine Musikalische Zeitung, General Musical News, declared it one of the most original, most sublime, and most profound products the entire genre of music has exhibited. We are inclined to agree. Perhaps more than any other work, this symphony changed the way people thought about music. It showed the world new possibilities of what music could be and what music could do. Music was no longer merely seen as an artful gratification of the sense of hearing, but as a vehicle for expressing humanity's most powerful ideas, emotions and experiences. Music could be revolutionary. Music could be heroic. In the summer of 1817, after Beethoven had completed eight of his nine symphonies, Beethoven's friend Christian Kofner asked him, Tell me frankly, which is your favorite among your symphonies? Beethoven simply replied, Eh, eh, the Eroica. On the Music is a co-production of the Houston Symphony and Houston Public Media. For more episodes and a complete list of credits, visit houstonsymphony.org slash onthemusic. Please send your questions, comments and feedback to onthemusic at houstonsymphony.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.